Hi, I'm Megan Rinks. And I'm Melissa D. Montz. And like every other person with access to a microphone, we started a podcast. On Mondays, we release Don't Blame Me, which is an advice podcast where listeners call in and we share our thoughts on situations such as what to do if you're going to your boyfriend's family function and you haven't told him that you previously slept with both his twin brothers. Then on Thursdays, we release our podcast, But Am I Wrong?, where we ethically gossip about pop culture, politics, our lives, and your lives. Listeners write in and we tell them if they're wrong or right in a situation. Are you the hero or the villain? On Tuesdays and Fridays, we throw in a little something extra as well. Well, something, something. We strive to create a community grounded in activism, mental health, and inclusivity. Think of us as like your blunt, honest friends who give you advice that you need to hear, not what you want to hear. But we're also always rooting for your success. What we lack in credentials, we make up for in... Opinions. We do that in every episode, too. (laughs) We're professional unprofessionals, so if you're looking for a new slate of podcasts to add to your routine, we're here for you. ACAST recommends. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. First of all, I just want to tell you that I'm 44% English. (laughs) 44% English. 24% Irish, 18% Spanish, 6% Swedish, I reckon that's Viking. And I found out this week that I'm 6% Ashkenazi Jew, which, who, who originated in the Rhineland, which is where I live in Cologne. And I now have a German passport. So I just want to get this English-Scottish thing out of the way (laughs) immediately. Did you do one of those DNA ancestry things then? Yeah, I did. You should do one. I highly recommend it. Because Ashkenazi Ashkenazi Jews seem to come up a lot. Yeah, well, basically, what the the history of the Ashkenazi Jew, which I only know from this week, is that in the (laughs) Middle Ages, they were here. They were uh, pushed out... uh, you know, from uh, from Cologne to the east, and really right. were then in Eastern Europe, all as great swathe of Eastern Europe. So right. were um, travellers or Romani, you could call them. Right. And right. we knew that my father's father was a Romani, so that <clears throat> must have been the origination. And of course, um, uh, they were decimated during the Second World War in the, in yeah. the, the in the camps, and um, yeah. so. Most of my relations are actually in America, and I know none of them. Anyhow, that's right. my DNA. I want to get out of that. I want to go into your <laughs> history. Um, do you come from a musical family? Because I know your father uh, was a choir master for the Scottish National Orchestra. So yeah. how much music was there around you when you grew up? And what sort of influence did that have on you? Well, I was thinking about this recently, because if you'd asked me this when I was in my 20s, I would have said there wasn't much music. I mean, we didn't, uh, I mean, there wasn't a piano. Uh, there was a harpsichord sitting in the hall that we used to play every now and then. But I don't, there wasn't any communal music. There wasn't much singing along or stuff like that. I mean, my, it was my dad's job. So he had a study and he would be locked in that study, generally not making a noise, just, I suppose, just working on scores and things. And, and also, my dad's job involved, seemed to involve more admin than music. So he always had an office in the house uh, and with lots of office equipment. And he had a secretary and you never heard any music coming out of the, coming out of the office. You were more likely to hear music coming out of uh, the living room with my mum playing a bit of uh, light jazz or opera or something. So I never really, compared to other families, I never thought that we were particularly musical. But now looking back, yeah, I mean, we were taken to see classical concerts and operas and things when we were kids, which which we hated, you know, because they were terribly boring. But we were, we were exposed to a lot of culture, you know, a lot of, um, you know, our mum was an actor. So we, uh, by the time she had kids, she'd given up her career, but she still did quite a lot of uh, like sort of university acting and things. So we used to go and see her in plays quite a lot so yeah we, we were we were exposed to lots of stuff but it didn't none of it ever felt particularly um familial uh, you know if you if you compared our me and my sister's upbringing to other people we knew I mean they were having you know they were getting the guitars out after dinner and uh, you know they would have parties and people would, their 
neighbours and friends, parents, friends would come around and sing pop songs and things. We didn't have any of that. Yeah, although what you say, I mean, okay, there's one side, which is this getting the guitars out and that's other families and so on. And that's very then, you know, a musical family. Um, Mm. But certainly there was, uh, I would imagine there's a a air of cultural support there. Whereas if you look at most families, and I don't know, I mean, my family's not average either, but my father was a market trader. uh, My mother was a housewife. And, you know, that the music, that we heard would, would be a, something like Glenn Miller or something like that that would be yeah. my mother's taste. And there wasn't an atmosphere of, there is an aspect, a cultural aspect, which is an area that you could get into within your life. Did you feel that you always had some sort of support to do something culturally in your life? Yeah, we definitely had that. So, uh, and I was the only one of the three of us that seemed to show that bent and that, you know, I formed a band when I was at school, you know, and uh, I went to a lot of gigs when I was quite young. So, yes, I was definitely encouraged, especially by Barbara, our mother. Uh, I mean, our dad wasn't around much. She was she was away a lot uh, working. Um, but, yes, there, there was no certainly no discouragement from from our father. And, and I got... I got lots of encouragement from, from my mum. And I, I, mean, I used to discuss, I would come home from school really upset because somebody in my band had shown a lack of commitment. And uh, my mum would talk me through it, you know, the sort of pains of, of artistic collaboration and all that sort of stuff. How old were you? So, yeah, that was, that, what was that? How old were you? Uh, I mean, this is probably, probably when I was 14 or f- something like that, 13 or four, 14, I would say. Yeah, probably... The band probably got together when I was 14. I think so you were taking right. it pretty seriously early on, really, if you were oh, having I mean, a discussion really, with your mother. <laughs> I was a very serious young man. Uh, yeah, really, really serious. I mean, I, I, as soon as punk rock sort of showed me the way and uh, that you didn't have to be a virtuoso of anything, you could just grab an instrument and start expressing yourself. And if you had any any kind of originality, then you could probably get a gig. And if you had any sort of drive, you could probably get a gig. So as soon as I found that way of doing things, uh, I was completely, completely obsessed by it. You know, what was the what was the thrill? When was your first gig, and what was the thrill of doing that? Even if it was a school gig or whatever it was, what yeah. what did it mean to you actually to be on stage and to be the focus uh, of attention and to be able to play the music that you wanted to play? Well, the, the first the first gig we did was organised by our drummer Paul Tiagi, uh, and we only found out a few days before that, in fact, we just thought it was a sort of local disco at his his town hall. He lived in a place called Bears Den, which is a kind of suburb on the edge of Glasgow. Uh, and anyway, he booked his this gig, uh, a headline gig at the Bears Den Borough Hall, which is quite a big venue, but probably holds about eight hundred people or something. Um, but then he informed us a few days before that it was actually a benefit for the, lo- for the local Liberal Party. <laughs> it's just like, who couldn't be less cool if we tried? I suppose it could have been the Conservative Party. It could have been slightly worse, uh, which I was absolutely furious about. But by that point, it was too late. But it turned out to be a really good gig. It was just a bunch of, uh, it was just a bunch of sort of 15-year-olds and, uh, and maybe some 20-somethings. Um, and we were, we must have been absolutely horrendous, but I remember I remember loving it because the room was full, and I suppose because it was a political benefit, they all they just kind of nodded their heads and and patronised us. So it was a quite a quite a forgiving baptism. What was it like musically? Oh, uh, it would, we'd have done one cover. We, we'd have done "Tired of Waiting" by the Kinks. I think that was the first cover we did, but the rest of it was just all very monotonous little guitar riffs and some very odd lyrics thrown over the top. You wouldn't say it was even melodic. It would have just, not atonal, but uh, not melodic either. I tend to just, me and the the other guitar player that wrote the lyrics, we tended just to sing one note through everything. And the guitars didn't do much much different either. God knows what it sounded like. Uh, I mean, we, we... we went from that to becoming 
postcard copyists very quickly. We, we, we got really obsessed by Orange Juice and Joseph K. Um, and we, I actually discovered some footage of a very, very early Delimitri from when we were, you know, like 15, 16. Uh, and it's horrendous because we're just aping the wee sort of moves of Orange Juice and Joseph K. It's incredibly embarrassing. You know, there was obviously we're desperately in love with these men that are five or six years older than us and we kind of worship them and we're just completely copying them. What about your love of words? Because you're, you know, one of the things that has really been an identification factor uh, of your music is your lyrics. And I just wonder whether at school there were particular books you read or particular things that you liked which have always stayed with you and you love the phrasing of, of in these books or you love something about them or this is something that came up later? Yeah, I, well, the lyrics, there might, there might have been books. I mean, I did read books. <laughs> uh, and it was English, was English and art were the only subjects I could cope with at, at school that I, I didn't find incredibly difficult. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I read Sylvia Plath quite early and I think that was probably quite a big influence. But I, I read Sylvia Plath because we had the books in the, in the house. And Sylvia Plath is quite accessible when you're a teenager because it's very, it's incredibly angst-ridden. Um, and it, it really appeals. I mean, obviously, things like Catcher in the Rye. And, um, uh, me, and, me and my sisters read quite a lot of Ted Hughes as well. Those books were hanging around. Um, but... Mainly that the the impetus to write lyrics was just turning on the John Peel show and hearing bands sing about things that you you wouldn't expect rock bands to sing about, you know, singing about, I don't know, being on the dole or singing about sing, writing love songs in quirky, new, original ways, um, writing political songs, you know, the, the punk and post-punk and new wave, uh, Lyrically, everything got kind of blown wide open. I mean, prior to that, it was all glam rock and prog rock in, in my world. And the, the, the lyrics in prog rock are just really awful. They're incredibly obscure and uh, very hard to relate to. They tend to mainly involve sort of dragons and pirates and things. So, um, again, just, just listening to punk rock really allowed you to think, oh, I, I could do this. You know, I could write a, a daft love song. I mean, what you mentioned, you know, the first gig and, the, and it was uh, a Liberal Party benefit. And also, you've also sort of just mentioned some sort of political awareness that you had at that yeah. time, that we're roughly the same age. And yeah. the late 70s and, and early 80s, um, I saw them as a really shit period in musical terms, they were fantastic. In political and social terms, there was this yeah. massive upheaval. So I was, you know, I was down south. I was in a town called Chelmsford, which is north of London. And I moved to London in my early 20s. And um, the world seemed horrendous at that time with yeah. misogyny, racism, homophobia, you name it. It was, it was all there. What was, what was your world like? In, in those terms, did you find that you were sort of, that music provided an escape for you, even in those early days, from the wider world? Or was it a way to see the wider world? It was definitely, it definitely was a way to see the wider world. I, the, the escape narrative isn't true of a band like Delamitri, who, who are uh, firmly middle class, you know, and... Uh, I came from an incredibly privileged background in that I had a very, very understanding parents, uh, went to a very sort of, uh, not a private school, but, but to all intents and purposes, it may as well have been a private school. I had a private school ethos. I mean, it wasn't fee paying, but it, it may as well have been. It was a fucking hideous place. Uh, but but not, not in any way school of hard knocks or, or rough. Um, so it, there was no, you know, my life's trajectory was going to be go to university, do an arts degree, and I don't know, I fucking knows what, what the trajectory was after that, but certainly go to university for three or four years. Um, and the, what, the, what the music thing did was just completely change that direction. And uh, the, 
fun enough, you know, you're talking about this sort of political culture at the time. You've got the kind of, that kind of really sort of entrenched late 70s, unreconstructed sexism and racism, as you're saying. And then you had the Thatcher Revolution, which created a sort of, in, in my world, created a, a, a sort of mild, uh, disdainful form of protest, but not real protest. There wasn't real anger uh, in, in the, the, the way that there was, you know, during the minor strike or something. The, the Thatcher Revolution, uh, we sort of sneered at it. We did, we did absolutely fuck all about it. Uh, but because of the... Uh, because of Thatcher's um, sort of drive to make everybody an, an entrepreneur, there were schemes available that meant you could leave school and um, sign on to a, like a, a yacht scheme or something and get a bit of money every week that would pay for rehearsal. So actually, the, ironically, and I know Alan McGee from Creation said this, ironically, the Thatcher, the early period of the Thatcher government was really beneficial to people like us that wanted to go arty and wanted to go and just sign on and uh, not be hassled into some shitty job and just rehearse as much as much we could. And effectively, that's what, that was the kind of making of us in that, um, you know, we could sign on uh, and rehearse cheaply and rehearse like six days a week, you know, and that was really where we learned our stuff after I'd left school and, and, uh, once it was kind of out in the world. There seems to be quite a long period until the, the, the first album um, was released um, and that you were together as a band. So there's, you know, there's this long lead up to it. In that period, and uh, I presume uh, you were listening to lots of indie bands in that period yeah. and, and following those, what, what did who did you want to be musically at that point as a band? Well, we started off once Ian joined the band in '82. Prior to that, we were just we just wanted to be Orange Juice and Joseph Key. That was it. Uh, and then once Ian joined, we tried to be a cross between Television and Captain Beefheart. We didn't sound like that at all, but that's what we were aiming for in terms of the guitar arrangements. We wanted. We didn't want any chords. We wanted all the guitars to be single lines or maybe arpeggiated lines. We wanted to sort of fit those together with very melodic bass and quite strange drums. We were really obsessed with the first Feelies album as well. That was a big influence. Well, they, they did use a lot of chords, unlike um, unlike Captain Beefheart. But yeah, we were we were obsessed by Beefheart, the Feelies television, uh, and. Uh, and obsessed with writing songs in a collective way, writing songs with all four members con uh, contributing. Was so, that difficult then? Was that difficult to do that? Yeah, that was really. That was really hard. I mean, as I say, that's why we were rehearsing five or six days a week. We, you know, we rehearsed like six, seven, eight hours a day. It was nuts. And I mean, I, I suppose I was kind of the ringmaster, and that I we would come in and I would say I would just point it one of the guitar players and say, just play something, you know, every day. So there was a lot of kind of jamming around little loops of figure, guitar figures. And then we were trying to mash things together. Oh, that doesn't work, that's the wrong key. Oh, that doesn't work, that's the wrong tempo. And eventually we'd find all these bits that we'd worked on and come, come up with parts for, based on something that somebody, that one of the guitar players had played. We would sort of fit those together make some kind of structure that I would record on cassette and I, then I would take that home and write a bunch of words over the top and then come back in and maybe dick around a bit with the structure but not much. But that literally took two or three months per song, you know. Uh, it was an incredibly labour-intensive way of doing things. I mean, the end result was we got the, the first album, I listened to it now, and it's, it's, it's spite of lots of things that are very embarrassing about it, Musically, it's it's very dense and complicated, and it's I think it's quite original, you know, in its own way, um, because it's not. It really is constructed in quite an arty way. It's uh, it's kind of a patchwork thing, um, and it, eventually that became so painful and time-consuming that Ian suggested that we that we tried writing different in a different way, and he just said, "Look, why don't we just write things separately?" Uh, and that 
that ended up being a big change in what, what we did. You know. What was your expectation of that album? That was on Chrysalis, I think, wasn't it? The first yeah. album? Yeah. yeah. So w- w- when you got that signed, there must have been a sort of particular expectation about how this is going to go. What What was your expectation and how well, did that pan out? Well, we were, we had very low expectations commercially because we were signed to an indie offshoot of Chrysalis called Big Star. Uh, you know, one of these pseudo indie labels that all the major labels uh, launched in the early eighties. Uh, so, and we, we we weren't given a huge amount of money. We were given twenty five thousand quid, uh, which was enough to to put us on wages. You know, so, you know, allowed us to go full time, allowed us to buy a bit of gear, um, and it would you know that money probably lasted just like a year and a half or something. Um, but there was no commercial pressure from Christmas because we were on this indie label. I guess the expectation from the label was, oh, maybe they'll get into the indie chart and one of the singles will be in the top 10 of the indie singles chart or something, or maybe they'll get a good review. Um, but this rather odd thing happened when we, after we signed to Christmas. We were just getting on with making the first album. We were, we were quite well thought of in the weekly music press, you know, the enemy melody maker and sounds covered us favorably because we were part of that post postcard scene, you know, and we were getting better. We were starting to do some quite interesting things, I think. But then what happened was our manager managed to get the attention of the editor of melody maker, a guy called Ian Pye, um, to get interested in what we were doing at Chrysler. So she sent him three, the first three songs that we'd recorded, they were unmixed, as I remember, they'd be recorded for the first album. So she sent Ian Pye these songs and he went apeshit about them. And then, kind of off his own back, put us on the cover of Melody Maker before we released anything. We'd, put, we'd, we'd released one indie single like a year and a half before or something or a year before. So all of a sudden we were being touted by the Melody Maker as the future of, you know, of British indie pop. Uh, and I, the, so then what happened was that the, the, uh, the A&R department at Chrysalis phoned up the press department and said, who's this band, Delamitri? We should sign them. And uh, the press department said, you signed them six months ago. Uh, so, the, so then what happened was the A&R department started putting us under pressure because prior to that, we were just on this little indie offshoot of Chrysalis and nobody really, nobody knew what the hell we were up to because we weren't spending very much money. So we, was just, we, we were flying under the radar. But as soon as this Melody Maker cover happened, um, the record company got extremely nervous and thought, oh, we've got, we've, we've got this precious hip property that they didn't know what to deal with. So then they hummed and hawed about putting the first single out. And then they decided that we should wait until we'd finished the album. Anyway, so we, we ended up not releasing anything for, for like six months or something, by which time there'd been a huge backlash because the other music papers... Uh, who to a certain extent were more influential actually, Sounds in the Enemy thought, well, who the fuck are these guys? You know, they've, they, they put one single, they, they, the Melody Maker put them in the cover with a center spread article, and then uh, they never put anything out. This, this, is, this is just fucking hype. Um, so by the time the album came out, we were absolutely savaged by the Sounds in, in the Enemy. Um, so that was really, that was game over, because we were... Uh, as you know, you were asking about expectations. There were no commercial expectations for that record. It just had to get good reviews, and then we would have done another record, and then maybe we could have built an audience, and you know, we played some universities, and we could have maybe, yeah, we could have got slightly bigger or reached a slightly wider audience, but without any hullabaloo or, or commercial pressure. Um, so yes, it was fucked. It was totally fucked. It, 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 fucked with the fact that our, our record company just made a complete complete art of it you know but i mean chrysalis were just one of they were even though they were a small major they were just hideous in those in the 80s they were the spandau ballet record label there was a lot of cocaine going on there was a lot of you know a and r guys getting on planes to glasgow with you know somebody in the office they were having an affair with and spending shitloads of money just you know, to sign, you know, ostensibly hip bands from the town that produced Postcard, and it was it was a it was a really horrible culture. It was a, uh, it was the antithesis of everything we were about. You know, it, it was kind of glam and uh, 
and hedonistic and uh, you know it, it just wasn't for us at all we were this little these little middle class socialists who were trying to do something you know original and and, and deeply indie and it, it just it was the wrong label for that and when they finally decided to pull the plug on the on the contract you were in america yeah. weren't you how did that feel at that time and um, no we weren't in america we were uh we we actually tried to get them to drop us because they they took up the option on the second album we, we, to our great surprise because we, obviously the whole thing had been a huge commercial and critical failure or not not even a huge failure just a failure uh but then for some weird reason, they took up the second option. I think because we were, it was cheap to do, uh, they only had to pay us like, a, a small amount of money to keep us on the label. And then we realised that they were going to sit on us and force us to write pop songs, uh, which we couldn't do and weren't willing to do. Uh, and we were, so we realised that we were going to get into one of these awful traps that happens to an awful lot of bands where they're still signed to the label, but the label won't let them record because they're not writing sufficiently uh, commercial material. So the label won't spend any money in the recording studio on the, on the artist, which should be illegal, but it's, uh, to, I think to this day, it's not illegal. So we, um, our manager and us sort of stays to kind of sit in in the offices and we print up these t-shirts saying release the devils uh, to try and force to force them to drop us because we, we because we couldn't work you know we couldn't uh, they wouldn't give us any money to do anything because they, they um considered what we we're doing uncommercial so then we tried to compromise and we wrote a sort of pop song called tears and trickery and then they said oh that's quite good write us another three of those and and we said no we're not doing that um fuck off so yes we got into this big sort of battle with christmas and then eventually they dropped us i think maybe spring 86 so it was actually after that that we went to America um, with our sort of last couple of thousand quid, which we spent on airfares. So, um, yeah, that was how that happened. What was the plan with going to America then? If you were at that point, you know, you're at that point, you haven't got a label, you've got yourself out in some way, and you're going off to America with limited money. What, well, what's well, we had no goal? money. <laughs> we had no money. We, we, had, we had two grand in the bank, which we spent on airfares. This, it was a big plan by Barbara Shores, our manager, who's an American woman who'd moved to the UK to uh, make a postcard fanzine. She was obsessed with postcards, as a lot of Californians were in the, the early 80s. Um, but she always had this dream of taking like a Scottish band to, to America and showing, showing them America, which is what she did. Uh, so the plan was spend the last money we had on airfares, do a private party um, in New Jersey um, that was being put on by a big fan called Tim Haland, I think. Um, and that was going to raise a couple of thousand dollars, which would allow us to buy a van. And then we were going to go around staying in fans, in most cases, parents' houses, where they would put gigs on for us either in their aunt's house or in a record shop or in a local club that they'd hired. Um, because in the intervening years, we'd been writing to all these fans and kind of grooming them to help us. You know, we, you know, we would, can you put, can, could you put a gig on for us? Oh yeah, I'm having a 21st birthday party. Yeah, I'll, I'll rent a club in, in Orlando and we'll sell tickets and we'll give you the money. So that, that's how that worked. And it was, it was budgeted and it was, it sort of depended on selling quite a lot of badges and T-shirts and busking was quite a big part of it. Um, so what happened when we got to the States was the guy who was having the private party who said he was going to sell 200 tickets at 20 bucks a head, he effectively had a nervous breakdown, partly because there was 10 of us sleeping on his living room floor in a small apartment in Jersey Heights. That didn't help. Uh, but he hadn't sold the tickets that he claimed that he'd sold. So he didn't have any money for us. We, he just had a couple of hundred bucks. Uh, so then we had to start phoning other fans that we'd been in touch with, saying, could they lend us stuff? Because we were going to hire equipment. We had to borrow all the equipment before we went on the road. We borrowed a van from a commercial van hire place that was run by a Mancunian guy in, again in New Jersey. It, it was just insane. The whole thing was absolutely insane. Um, but how formative uh, was that musically? And also, um, 
yeah, as you know, as people, because you know, when you travel to another country and when you get that sort of experience, you you do change. It changes you, especially at yeah. a young age. And also, um, you had this musical experience, and yeah. you, you're then presumably more open to what's culturally going on in another country. So yeah. I just wondered how that changed you yeah. in both those areas. It, it was completely formative. Um, it was our backpacking year out, you know. Um, it was formative in the sense that it was extremely stressful psychologically because we were hungry all the time. Uh, we, were, we weren't getting enough sleep because we were just pulling over and sleeping in picnic rest areas because we didn't have money for any accommodation at all. Um, we would get fed and watered when we were in a town where a fan was putting on a gig for us. So, you know, the parents would open the very generously and hospitably open the frigidaires to us. Um, so formative in, in, in that sense, it was kind of miraculous that we, we got round the whole circuit. Musically, it was a huge change because American audiences are wildly different from European audiences and everything is a lot more showbiz. You know, everything's about performance and uh, and sort of showing off. And we learn really quickly to, to respond to that because American audiences teach you that. You know, they, they, they're, they're very, they're extremely vocal. They'll tell you what bits they like and then you just play up to that. And it becomes quite uh, histrionic, you know. Um, and But that's fun. That's really great fun. So it, it changes in that six week tour. We, we went from being a very earnest, slightly shoegazy indie post postcard band to being to being a rock band, you know, um, with guitar solos. I mean, we didn't realise that we had guitar solos until these guys would go woo and start clapping. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. And also the other thing that was musically formative was we went into a lot of college radio stations because quite a few college radio stations played the first elementary record. Uh, And we would talk to these guys and go, what else are you listening to? And, you know, they would play some really interesting American indie music, but they were also listening to, like, deeply mainstream, white, Midwestern shit, you know. Uh, and that, and they didn't really see any difference between, uh, you know, Bob Seger and REM. They were, they were it was rock. It was alternative rock to them, you know, or, or it was just rock. Uh, and that was that just blew all the kind of punk rock uh, puritanism away. It just blew it away because it didn't matter anymore. You, you could, if these guys thought we were the same as. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, uh, then we were. We were, the, we were the same genre. It was just rock music. So uh, that it just meant we could take the straight jacket of taste and, uh, um, you know, uh, yes, the straight jacket of taste just went. And uh, it meant that we could write things in any mode we like. We could write things in a blues mode. We could write thing, things in a country mode. Um, and also, actually, prior to going to America, we, we started listening to quite a lot of country music, and that was quite a big change as well. But yes, the, the American trip changes as people and as musicians, uh, and it completely changed our, our opinion of, of Americans, whom we snootily thought were just all big, fat idiots that, you know, like Ronald Reagan before we went over there. And then we, we lived and effectively worked with these people for days at a time, and were overwhelmed by their generosity, their intelligence, their, you know, their cultural acumen. They were just, all these people were just fascinating, you know, interesting, uh, really deeply decent people. Um, So yes, America became, uh, unlike other bands experience of America, which you see it off a tour bus, and you can can end up being extremely cynical about America in, in that environment. We'd, we'd been living with people's parents and, and, and with our extended families and, and uh, sleeping in their bedrooms and uh, swimming, in, swimming in their pools or, or, you know, sitting in their yards drinking. But did that make you more focused as, as a band or, you know, particularly you and Ian, obviously, as, as uh, the writers? Did it make yeah. you much more focused in terms of 
where you wanted to go, what you wanted to do. And that meant that when you came back, I don't know what the situation was and how soon you got another record contract, but when you came yeah. back, you knew exactly where you were going. Yeah, that, I mean, we went, we went to the States to achieve two things, to get round it in one piece and to come back with a, a, an indie record deal. Uh, and we'd we'd set our sights on a, a label called Big Time in Los Angeles, which is yeah, and just an indie record company. So we spoke to them when we were out there, and when we came back, they sent us a bit of money to do some demos. So we did a bunch of demos that were, I, I guess would have been probably, I suppose, would constitute the sort of second Delimitri indie album. Um. And we felt that if we, if we could get through that experience, we could do anything. We, we really felt we could do anything because, um, uh, you, know, you know, I suppose like the, the, the Beatles coming back from Hamburg, if, you know, they must have thought, if we can play like 12 hours a day, we can fucking do anything. If we can get these drunken sailors dancing, you know, or stop them fighting, and if we can just improvise, you know, daft bits of comedy, uh, uh, then, you know, we can, if we can get through that, we can get through anything. And, you know, sleeping on the fucking roadside and running away from electric storms and having band meetings at the Grand Canyon and being genuinely hungry for months at a time, um, you, you just think, fuck me, we did that, you know. And it, it, made, it made us feel like we were better than anybody else, you know. Um, because nobody else, had, as, as far as we knew, no other bands in, in our milieu had, had done anything like this. Uh, actually, going to the States with no money and just and kind of busking it, you know. Um, it's an incredibly so, brave thing to do. I think it's well, an amazing we were, we were, Yeah, I mean, it was brave. The, the, the bravest person was our manager, Barbara, and that she, she had the, the chutzpah to put it together and think that it might work. And, it, and of course it didn't work. I mean, it, 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 it didn't work because we didn't raise the amount of money we thought we were going to raise. Um, but in some ways, in some ways it did work because we did all the gigs. Um, I mean, we had to beg, you know, we had to beg for money, but we, we did do the gigs. Um, so, but then what happened after we got back was we, we did the big time demos, which were indie. They were probably a bit less indie than the, first Christmas album but not much but then Ian and I started writing separate things that were very sort of mainstream in Americana and then we started thinking shit these songs are really mainstream is there any point in putting mainstream songs out in a small label um, so because our music just morphed quite quickly post the American trip into, um, into mainstream rock music we, we very quickly went from focusing on getting a small deal and doing a small scale thing to thinking we should sign to another major, major label. You know, we've got, we've got the experience, we're writing pop songs, we, we should go for it. And so we, that was a complete shift of, of um, planning, you know. I remember being... Strategy, uh, I should say. I remember being on MTV at that time, MTV Europe, which was started in 1987. And I used to interview people and present the news on the channel. And yeah. it was the era of 87. And I think you came along in that sort of era with um, yeah. waking hours. But your first two singles, and I think I've got this right, your first two singles didn't chart, did they? So it, no. So it must have also been a sort of hit at that point. Okay, we've got our direction. We know where we want to go. We've created yeah. songs that were, we really can stand behind now because they're yeah. really part of us. And then the first sense is, oh shit, this doesn't work. So how how was that, and how did you get through it, or did that process just happen quickly and in a nice way? <laughs> well, it did happen in a nice way because we got radio play. Um, so "Kiss the Sing Goodbye," which came out, I think, in August '89, I think. Um, uh, it got, I think it got a bit of Radio 1 play, certainly at night, but it got a lot of commercial radio play. So I would sit in my bedroom at night and tune to the stations, and I would hear it a lot. So that was super encouraging. And also it sounded really good in the radio. So that, that, that made us think, look, we've done the right thing here. We've, you know, we've, we've made the right sort of record. Because um, 
every time we heard those, the, the, the um, sort of certainly kisses in the buying the radio, it just leapt out because it, 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 it wasn't soaked in all that 80s reverb like everything else was at the time. Um, so we thought we've got, we might have a bit of a chance here. Um, so we weren't distressed that, that the first two singles didn't get into the top 40. I mean, they sort of, I think they did okay. I think they charted outside the top 40 fairly respectably. Um, and we were also pretty convinced that A&M were going to keep going because uh, we had a two-album firm deal, which was quite unusual in those days. So we knew we were going to get a second album. So we weren't, we weren't panicking about these mainstream things not being hits. And the, also the audience was growing a bit because we had this radio play on, on local radio stations. So if we did a university gig, uh, less people would drift away. They would, more of them would stick around to watch us. So it felt like we were going in the right direction. But, you know, as, as you're, you know, sort of hinting, the absolute key in those days was you had to get into the top 40 because if you got into the top 40, you'd be on the television, you might get top of the pops, and then overnight you were a successful group, you know. It was, it was just that, it was that simple. That was the equation. To get top 40, get top of the pops, you're famous. Yeah, I mean, it was the equation. I know it's not the equation for a, a, a band because the equation is, am I doing what I want to do in life? Am yeah. I creating something for me that's worthwhile and that the yes, audience but we, like? But, but it's we, very interesting as well, I think, because it is something that you need from an audience, that sort of feedback, and that is in a massive way if you get that success. Yeah, uh, but our, our thing was, because we'd been an arty indie band and then suddenly we'd started writing mainstream songs, we were very... Um, we were we, we had commercial ambition for the songs because we we loved the songs I and mean, we loved waking hours, but we didn't think it, it we could justify it unless it was in the charts. So it, it, it does. I mean, not because we wanted to be successful, but because that was that the charts are where that shit belonged. You know, you know the the first time the album didn't belong in the charts. It belonged in you know indie clubs and 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 in polytechnics. You know, uh, that that's where that music sat. But because we'd written these fucking mainstream, slightly Americana things, um, they didn't make any sense outside of the, the mainstream. So we, we were we were really keen to have a hit, really keen to have a hit. I mean, again, not, not for commercial reasons so much as uh, the, the, the sort of creative sense that that's where that stuff belongs. You know, it belongs... You know, we want to be, we want housewives who listen to Radio 2 to, to hear this stuff. Uh, we didn't want them to hear the old stuff because they, they wouldn't have understood it, you know. Um, forgive the term housewife, but that, that, was, that, that was the thinking at the time, you know. I um, am a housewife. <laughs> well, so am I. <laughs> You've just described me because <laughs> I was listening to it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's made me very happy. <laughs> In terms of success, though, when Nothing Ever Happens came out, and it was massive, and MTV played it to death at that uh, that time, right. and um, I just wonder whether it changed your mentality in any way to have that success and to suddenly be recognisable um, and to yeah. have that confirmation in some way. Yeah. The validation was good because, you know, the, the incredible snobbery of the, the sort of hipper parts of the Glasgow music scene had always thumbed their nose at Delamitri, which we took some pride in, but it, we took a hell of a lot more pride in in beating them at their own game, which was, you know, being in the charts. So that was that was very uh, uh, revenge is sweet. Revenge really is sweet, and I, I, I you know, uh, don't let anybody tell you different. Uh, but um, other than that, I don't. I might be wrong. I don't think. It had that much effect because we were so long in the tooth by that point. I mean, you know, I'd been in a bank of Dunleavy since 1980, so it'd been at least 10 years of a young person's life that I'd been doing this, and then I was people were recognising me in the street. So I think we found it. It was a bit odd, but we found it very amusing. Partly because it immediately made our lives easier. You know, we had we were playing nicer venues, we had nicer dressing rooms, we had a nicer van. What's not to love about that? You know things are actually improving just in terms of the quality of our, our lives. The, the sort of fame 
aspect we dealt with immediately by nipping in the buds. We didn't we didn't play up to it. We didn't glam up. We didn't start buying expensive clothes. We didn't change. We didn't move out of our flats in the middle of Glasgow. We didn't stop going to the pubs that we went to. We were just there, you know. Um, so that the slight weirdness of being known uh, dissipated very quickly because we just we just didn't react to it. We just we just kind of ignored it. Uh, and Glasgow is quite a good place to be on the telly last night because people will just they'll be quite blunt with you you know um i mean i i tried to the day after we were on top of the pops the first time i got, got i tried to get on a bus just around the corner from my flat to go into town and the bus it was yeah the, the bus driver the bus driver said what are you doing i said i'm just going to town he went getty fuck i said so what do you mean what do you mean? Went, you don't talk to the pops. I say you're not getting the fucking bus, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't let me on the bus. <laughs> so I mean, I mean, I know that it's a bit of a cliche that you know Cleveland and Glasgow and these post-industrial towns are are quite f- sort of frank, or the people are quite frank and bold with their the way they the way they react to. Um, People, people that they perceive that might be sort of elevating themselves. I think there is some truth in it. So we, you know, I, I mean, I think if we'd lived in London, it'd be a lot weirder. And I think we'd have ended up going up our own fundament if we'd lived in London. But living living in Glasgow, it was partly people were really pleased for you and really proud of you, and also partly they they would just take the the, the absolute piss out of you. So that none none of that felt too mad uh, and also we felt like we deserved it we felt like we we'd worked really hard we made a really good first record which got savaged by the critics because of a mistake by the record company we'd made a really good second record which is very different from the first and we thought that, yeah we it felt totally deserved to be you know flying around europe doing a promo tour and eating in nice restaurants or whatever the whatever the glamorous side of that is i don't know well, one of the things that I think really uh, speaks for the quality of the band is that you continued on a on that level of success till about two thousand and two as a band, and yeah. um, that's a long period. I mean, yeah. if you look at pop bands, I mean, I, we did research at MTV in, in the late eighties about the length of a pop band or the length of a pop star. Their main part of the career is about four years. And yeah. then, you know, you went on for like 12, 14 years of success. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the success dipped, but so by 97, the success dipped, but we were uh, we were on Radio 1 over those three albums consistently with every single, you know, with like all four singles from each album. Uh, radio 1 played us to death. Uh, and, and commercial radio, the big commercial radio stations played us to death. Why that is, I don't know. I think there was a lot of luck involved. The record company was certainly a lot to do with that. They had a brilliant promotions department. They were they were very supportive of the record company. They let you do things in your own way. They didn't try and force you to do things that you're uncomfortable with. And because we'd never been part of, uh, I mean, apart from the early postcard years, we, I mean, we, we weren't part of the postcard scene anyway, because we'd never been part of a scene or a movement or a, a thing we just slipped between the, the, the cracks at, at radio and radio loved us because we were sort of rock. We were sort of pop. Uh, we weren't, you know, we weren't sort of pre-Brit pop. We weren't uh, uh, indie dance. We weren't anything trendy. So that I think a, a, a lot of radio producers just thought, well, that's just reliable. You know, we can play that and it's not going to frighten the horses and it works. Um, so yeah, uh, and and we did make radio friendly records, you know. We we and we thought about it. We thought we we were very concerned with how they were mixed, and I mean, especially by the time we got to Twisted, um, and we were we were really concerned with being a pop rock band. We wanted to be a rock band live, but have radio hits, you know. And um, we got as you're saying, we got away with it for quite a while, you know, which was quite remarkable without any great pressure. There was no pressure from like the tabloid press there was no huge pressure from the record company to to move up another gear to be playing stadiums you know we just carried on in this middle ground of the mainstream which was an extremely um uh comfortable place to be 
was waning success a reason that in 2002 that you went your separate ways for a while? Yeah. And so that was yeah, a very I... comfortable decision between you. That wasn't something yeah. that, that everyone was like, oh, no, I want to carry on. And you were saying, no, I'm going to go. It was something that was a mutual agreement. Well, that decision was made between Ian and our, me and our manager, John. Uh, so we got dropped by A&M that had become, wasn't A&M then, it was Mercury at that point. It had been bought over so many times. And, uh, it wasn't the label that it had been. Um, so we got dropped by Mercury, which we which were uh, more than happy about. Uh, and we sort of took stock for a couple of months. Um, and my assumption was that we would just sign to a sort of beggar's banquet type label and make albums on smaller budgets and play to smaller crowds and keep going for another 10 years or something. That was my assumption. But then we had a meeting and um, Ian and John said, I mean, that could be quite depressing. And I thought about it and, uh, I, you know, and I thought about some of the kind of half-empty halls that we played on the last tour in 2002 in the UK. And I thought, yeah, that could be quite depressing. <laughs> uh, and also in those days, this was before the days when you could make money on the road. It was before ticket prices went through the fucking roof. So um, it, that didn't look particularly appealing. So we just stopped. We just, and, and nobody, there was, We'd we'd done Delamitri. Nobody wanted it. The audience didn't want it anymore. You know, they, they had nobody bought the the last album. Can you do me good? Um, there was only one single from that, which didn't get played in the radio. It was it was definitely over. You know, definitely over. I mean, you said you'd done Delamitri. You went off and you've made four albums in in between. And I and I've got a jump, but you you made four albums in between. But then the decision mm. came um, to reform as it were yeah and to yeah. create another album what why did that come about or how did that come about well it, it, it came about because the reason we stopped is that the phone wasn't ringing there were there were not cues of promoters wanting us to play in germany or uh the united states or the uk or australia or any of the places that we'd previously been reasonably successful um and we didn't really think the phone would ever ring again. I mean, I suspected that it might because I'd seen a few bands just dis drop off the radar uh, and then all of a sudden come back into the sort of public consciousness for weird, strange reasons, like a, something, you know, a track would crop up in a film or, or you know, something would get, something would get played on a, public holiday on the radio and people go, oh God, that band were quite good. So I had, a, I had a vague feeling that the phone might start ringing again, but I wasn't terribly sure. So yes, I was just getting on with doing what I was doing and so was Ian. Um, and then our manager called up, in, I suppose 2013 or something, 20, maybe 2012, and said, oh, you know, your agent thinks that you might be able to play Hammersmith Odeon. And so it, that, that was it, really. That was, oh. And I think we just quite liked the idea of playing Hammersmith Odeon and, and making some money because by, by then you could make money on the road because, as I say, all the money had gone out of CD sales because, because recorded music was free and all the money had gone into the live arena because all of a sudden audiences who weren't buying records had spare money to spend on uh, concert tickets. And so people just started going to a lot more gigs and paying a lot more money for the, for the gigs. So... That was really interesting. It's like, well, fuck, we could actually, we don't have to go make a record and, and get on that, this treadmill of promoting album tour and all that sort of stuff. We could just do, go and do a bunch of gigs for fun, but make a lot of money. Uh, what's not to love? What's not to love about that? So that, that's really what happened was that the, the music business had turned on its head in the meantime uh, and gigs became viable. Um, a viable activity in, in terms of finance, you know, which they weren't before. They were, you know, everybody's gigs in the nineties were effectively supported by the rec recorded music industry. You know, they were all underwritten by record companies. So that's why tickets were so cheap. But that's so that then morphed into this idea of let's do a new uh, album, let's create music yeah. again together. Yeah, it, it. We decided on the, the twenty fourteen tour not to do any new material. Uh, 
and then by the time we got to 20, the 2018 tour, we'd started writing new material for that tour. So it was it was a sort of natural progression. I was the most resistant. Ashley, our drummer, and Ian were really up for it. They really thought it'd be a great thing to do another record. I canvassed a lot of my mates and said, why would we do this? Because I, 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 I really hate bands that, that piss off for 10 years and then come back and make another record and sully their back catalogue. That just drives me nuts. Um, so I was really against it. But all my mates went, oh, it'd be brilliant, it'd be brilliant, it'd be brilliant. I mean, to a person, every, every I spoke to was really excited about it. So that made me think, well, I better go and write some fucking Delamitri songs then. Um, and then I wrote a bunch of Delamitri songs. I thought, oh, these are, these are quite good. I wouldn't have written these if there hadn't been the possibility of Delamitri making an album. Well, that's quite interesting. And then I, I started to really enjoy writing for write, writing for the group again, you know, because previously I'd really enjoyed not writing for the group. I'd really enjoyed just writing anything I, anything I cared to write. Whereas writing for a group is a more much more focused uh, thing, you know, and it's it's more, you're more limited in your scope of what you can write for a band, I think. And that, that's a good thing because it forces you to think in different ways. One thing that I think well, I'm, I'm going to say that maybe there's something in, in, in common because I'm a screenwriter. And what I do when I write screenplay is I create a world and that world is then I put a story within that world around the theme that I want to explore. Mm-hmm. And um, and I always think that is something similar to creating music because you're creating, I don't know which comes first, but you're creating the music and the sort of lyrics go in and what you do with the lyrics is somehow they um, sometimes go against what the music stands for. The music is, yeah. you know, uh, it's it's positive and it gives you a good feeling. And the lyrics are sometimes really unexpected, you know, yeah. and, uh, and I wouldn't say negative, but they've got this sort of touch to them, which is really, oh, wow, I wasn't expecting that. So how do you go, go about creating a song and what do you, what do you want to achieve by it? Because that dynamic is really Delamitri dynamic yeah. within a song. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm not, I, I, I'm not conscious of that too much. And I wouldn't want to be, uh, you know, I, as a writer yourself, you know that self-consciousness is the enemy of all creativity. So that's not something that I, consciously think about but if I'm co-writing with Ian the music will tell me what the lyric is so as you're saying even though a lot of the songs that bands like us write the music's quite positive and sometimes the lyrics can be quite uh, it's hard to find an adjective uh, that isn't the word dark which is such a sort of meaningless cliche but um, yes the lyrics can be more negative um, and that can work quite nicely uh, but I think the, I, I, I think I'm pretty sure I get the the sourness from the music, you know. Um, uh, and then the other thing is, it's much easier to create drama if there's things going wrong in a in a song than if things are going right. So I was thinking about this the, the other day, actually, because I, I remembered that in the mid '90s, I wrote two absolutely positive love songs you know just really just no not there's not a hint of cynicism or poison or re, um, resentment in them at all which is completely unusual unusual for me and I was thinking about those songs and going oh yeah they're quite good songs those you know and I was thinking I wonder why I didn't write more of those and it's because it's I think it's because those sorts of songs, you start repeating yourself really quickly. You, the, 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 the kind of imagery that you can reach for to, to describe contentment and love and gaiety uh, is much more limited than the kind of language that you can use to describe resentment, jealousy, um, pain, suffering, all, all, all these things. There's a lot more in there, you know, just to get your teeth around. And also we connect to them more, don't we? Because we've all experienced those aspects of relationships. Yeah. It's not all light and fun yeah. and, you know, I love you, but let's get married, it's over. <laughs> but frustratingly, people do, people do connect with really up, happy things as well. And I really wish we could do that because when we do gigs, and I was thinking about David Bowie's Let's Dance the other day. I mean, you know, if you, you know, 
you hear that song and it makes you feel pretty good, you know. Uh, but he hated it, thinking, didn't he? He didn't like it. He he actually, well, you know, it was his most unfavorite album. It's what yeah, he said. Yeah, and it's, it's super commercial, and yeah, I mean, it probably it probably is kind of horrible. But what I think what most of us want is let's dance rather than uh, Masters of War. I mean, that's what we want because uh, there's. There's a, I think there's more of a sort of communal, uh, cathartic experience to be had from, you know, dancing along to uh, something blandly positive than there is to stroking your chin and scratching your nose to something, you know, a deep and profound Leonard Cohen song, you know. Uh, I mean, they, maybe they're, they're more private experiences, but I've, I do find it endlessly frustrating that we don't have more like positive anthems that are where people can just throw caution to the wind and and dance and have a good time. That's I mean, when we did that, we did some acoustic gigs at Edinburgh during the festival this year, and uh, half of the gigs, <laughs> somebody shouted, "Have you not? Somebody like have you, you know? Have you not got any happy ones?" And uh, you know. It, it, raised a big laugh and the answer is like no and that's I think that's not good I, I think that I think that has to change <laughs> well I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to the beginning just to end and you know I told you my DNA test I'm sure if you had one you know it's gonna be pretty way up there Scottish and anyone who's yeah. uh, who's written don't come home too soon for the the Scottish uh, football team and what's the latest one close your eyes and think of England which I absolutely yeah. loved well, just quickly at the end, what does it mean being Scottish? And for you, what does it mean then being English? Yeah, well, I mean, I always describe myself as half English because I grew up in England between the ages of five and ten, and uh, which were quite formative years for me. You know, it's when I started playing football and listening to music and things. Um, so I've always... Because of that, I've always really despised any streak of anti-Englishness that you that you find you do find in Scotland. I mean, it doesn't you don't come across it often, but you do you do um, find it lurking sometimes. And sometimes you find it lurking amongst the most urbane, civilized people who have very <clears throat> you have a very bitter uh, opinion of all of all English people. You know, which is just fucking insane. Um, so I, I always had this kind of dual nationality thing going on, and when I moved back to Glasgow in the late, sorry, in the mid seventies, I didn't feel like I fitted in at all. You know, uh, I had to change my accent back from because I had a Midlands accent when I was a kid, so I had to sort of change that back to a Glasgow accent in order not to get the shit kicked out of me. Because um, I went to quite a tough primary school when I came back. Uh, and I just, I didn't think Glasgow belonged to me in the, the words of the, the immortal song uh, until, probably until we did Barlands in 1990. So all that time, I, I felt like a, a fish out of water, you know. I, you know, I, all that early Delimitri stuff, I, it was all sung in an English accent. I mean, that's partly because of punk, but also partly because I never uh, felt particularly Scottish but then some things started changing weirdly in the 90s I remember noticing this traveling up and down from London to Glasgow a lot uh, and in fact, in fact more maybe more in the zeros uh, and maybe maybe after Scotland got its parliament or something Scotland started becoming more Scottish uh, which I, I wasn't sure about I didn't know whether this was a bad thing or, or a good thing and I found myself becoming more Scottish and feeling more Scottish when I was in London than I had done previously. And I don't know whether this is just because there is a there's a slow atomization of the United Kingdom going on that we're not very sure why that, that would be. You know, it would certainly explain Brexit, which I think was effectively just a form of English nationalism. Um, uh, and you've got Scottish nationalism, which you know, on the one hand, it's presented as being a very progressive almost well, a kind of progressive social democratic movement. But then on the other hand, Scottish nationalism is deeply a deeply suspect conservative um, instinct. Uh, so yeah, in terms of that kind of identity 
I still feel kind of British, even though the, the even though the British nationalism is like you know, an even dirtier concept than, than English nationalism, you know. Um, so yeah, I find all that quite confusing. If you talk to young people, when I say young people, I mean people below the age of 35. <laughs> um, they're they're they've got quite a positive take on Scottishness. They're not anti-English. Uh, they you know they love English culture, but they just fucking hate Westminster, and they see Westminster as the enemy, rightly or wrongly. Uh, and they've got this attitude that that we need to get out of there. Um, whereas people of my generation have kind of got an attitude that I can see why political autonomy is a good thing for a small nation. But at the same time, I can also see why it's a bad thing not being represented in the Palace of Westminster as a as a polity. And I can see why that could be extremely dangerous. So um, it, I'm really confused about all that stuff. Uh, I, but it gives you stuff to write about, I guess, you know. Yeah, exactly. And I also, I just want to thank you at the end for writing songs that have sort of re reflected uh, a lot of the uh, <laughs> trauma and uh, of my relationships <laughs> over the years. Our pleasure. Because <laughs> I haven't had the happy one yet, but, which is coming. And finally, oh, thank, you for, thank you for calling me a housewife. <laughs> That's made my day. So, Justin, thanks a lot. Yeah. Cheers. You, yeah. you too much appreciated. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye bye. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill, or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with the single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com <laughs>